means is that wisdom literature, its aim, its purpose is to help us navigate life successfully. You know, God is the creator. He's the author of life. He knows how life is supposed to work. And so uh, through his word, um, especially through these books that we think of as wisdom literature, he's wanting to communicate to us how to navigate life in this world wisely. And in this book in particular, we've been introduced to the preacher. That's how he's introduced to us uh, at the very beginning of the book. And the preacher is on a quest. He's on a quest to figure life out. He's asking the big questions of life. He's trying to discover the key that will unlock all the mysteries of life, that will help him make sense of it all. He's looking for what might give him an advantage, um, a, lev a leverage, a kind of leverage that would give him control, mastery over life. But as we've seen early in the series, he keeps hitting a wall. And the wall is this fallen world. He keeps, he keeps running into it. Um, he, he refers to this world as life under the sun or life under heaven. He uses these phrases interchangeably. It's the world where things don't work the way they're supposed to. It's a world where things don't work rightly or fairly all the time. And he forces us to deal honestly with these realities. Last week, we looked at how he's in the early stages of this quest, and he focuses in on pleasure at the beginning of chapter two. And he's basically asking this question, could it be that pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, is this key that will unlock all of life's mystery? His conclusion, as we saw last week, nope. It's a chasing after the wind. The pursuit of pleasure is not the answer. This week, he's going to consider wisdom and work as possibilities for um, holding the key to make sense of it all. And before I read the verses for this morning, I want to remind you that the preacher is our tour guide throughout this series. He's taking us on a tour, making observations about people, places, and things as he looks for the meaning of life. And as we've already seen, we will continue to see the ideas, the realities that he's exploring are the same ideas, same realities that we are exploring in our lives. So let me read uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 26 for us. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life 
because what is done under the sun was so grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray together. Jesus, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your presence, to receive your word this morning. Uh, as we gather around your word at this time, we're coming from different places, undoubtedly. Some of us are believing, others disbelieving, and still others of us may be not sure of what we believe at this time. But we're all here for a reason you have brought us, and so we pray that you would train us in wisdom, that we might know you and walk in your ways. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Have any of you ever seen the movie Stranger Than Fiction? Yes, okay, yes. Okay, many of you have. See, if I didn't follow up with you, I would have gone on assuming that literally none of you have ever seen it. All right, so at least some of you have seen Stranger Than Fiction. It came out in 2006. It's one of my favorite movies. I haven't watched it now in years. Um, the main character is Will Ferrell, and he plays an IRS agent named Harold Crick. Um, Crick is a, uh, a guy who lives a very methodical, a very regimented, a, a very routine life. And he's, no matter how hard he might try, he's unable to break out of his limited orderly life that he lives. One day he hears a voice. Now, there's a lot going on in this movie. You're going to see where I'm going with this. My point is not to get into all that's going on in the movie. But early in the movie, he hears a voice. And the voice is someone who is actually narrating his life. And the voice tells him he's going to die soon. All right? Imagine that. And the plot, basically, from there, focuses on him trying to figure out whose voice it is and what it means and how he can take control over his own destiny. Now, the reason I'm, I'm getting into this movie is for the purpose of this scene. Early in the movie, uh, he audits Anna Paschal, who's played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. And she's the owner of a bakery, and she is in debt with the IRS. So Harold Crick um, comes to her bakery to perform the audit. 
And she makes this task as difficult as possible for him. Uh, she is beside herself that she's being audited even in the first place, although she should be uh, audited. But she makes this as miserable as possible for Harold. So after a long day of the audit, uh, her heart softens and she invites Harold to stick around in the bakery, no one else is there at this point, for a cookie. He declines because he's concerned that it might be viewed as him receiving a bribe from a client. Um, but she uh, insists. And so I just want to read to you a little bit of their exchange, the interaction that happens. She says this, after a really awful no good day, didn't your mama ever make you milk and cookies? In response, he says, no, my mama didn't bake. The only cookies I ever had were store-bought. Mr. Crick, it was a really awful day. I know, I made sure of it. So pick up the cook cookie, dip it in the milk, and eat it. He does so. Mmm. Oh, that's a really good cookie. Thank you for forcing me to eat them. All right, now back to Ecclesiastes 2. What I want to do this morning, it's going to seem weird, but what I want to do is I want to show you that our preacher is basically like Anna Paschal in Stranger Than Fiction. Amid our really awful days, those days that make you want to hate life, the preacher is trying to insist that we enjoy a really good cookie. Now, not a cookie specifically, um, but you'll see what I mean. The preacher is going to help us to think about what to do when we hate life. And so we're going to ask two questions. We're going to focus on these two questions that basically come from the, tech, the, the, the text. And here are the two questions. First, why do we sometimes hate life? And second, what should we do about it? So why do we sometimes hate life and what should we do about it? In verses 12 through 17, the preacher examines wisdom as a potential key for holding the meaning to life, to holding all of life's mysteries. And he starts in verse 12 by contrasting wisdom with madness and folly. And then in verse 13, he, he realizes there is, in fact, actually more gain in wisdom than in folly, just in the same way that there's more gain in light than darkness. This is um, his flow of thought in, in verse 13. So just maybe he's on to something here. You know, maybe we're even pulling for the preacher at this point. Maybe he has identified what the key to life is. Maybe it's wisdom that will make everything make sense. Maybe it's wisdom that will bring deep and full satisfaction to life. Maybe he's on the right path here. Not for long, though. In verses 14 through 17, the preacher realizes something that turns him from optimism to pessimism pretty quickly. And it's this, the same fate awaits both the wise person and the foolish person. What is that fate? Death. Told you at the beginning of this series, you know, there are some fairly dark moments throughout um, this book. Um, the preacher is forcing us to wrestle with the deep questions of life, those questions that we naturally ask 
Sometimes we kind of push them aside because it's too much, but these are questions that are always there, even when they're in the background. And one of these questions is, what about death? And we can't help but to, at different points in our lives, reflect on death and its implications for us and why it even exists in the first place. And so in the, amid the preacher's reflections here about, well, maybe wisdom, there's something there. But wait, actually, I don't know. Because in the end, the same fate, death, awaits the wise person and the foolish person. We're all going to die. Whether you live your life as a wise person or a foolish person. The word gain is used twice in verse 13. And it's a super important word for understanding the preacher's quest in Ecclesiastes. We've talked about it um, already in the series. And you've probably noticed already as well that there are key words and phrases that get repeated throughout this book, such as vanity, under the sun or under heaven, the word gain, the word toil, the phrase striving after wind. These are all words that get repeated. And so based on that fact, we should pay close attention to them because the preacher is wanting to stress something by using these words repeatedly. And gain, as we pointed out, is one of those words. And it refers to leverage or control. Because here's what's going on in the preacher's quest. He's trying with all of his being. Remember, we've seen in previous weeks that this, this search, this quest, is, is coming from his heart. It's not just only an exercise of the mind. It's not just um, a thought uh, experiment, so to speak. It's actually something that he's wrestling with at the core of who he is. It's a deeply human quest. He's trying to make sense of life. He's trying to find the key that will unlock the meaning of it all. He's looking for that gain, that tool, that thing that will give him leverage, that will give him an advantage over life so that he might master it and bring himself into a place of control and security in life. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like something that you do in your life? something that I do in my life all the time. And what, is, what is ultimately his goal here? Well, he wants to be the master. So there are a number of things going on here. You know, one um, thing that we've said in this series is that this quest that he is on is deeply human. We, we can't help but to ask big questions about life. We can't help but to try to make meaning of things. And the reason for that is because we're made in the image of God. We're meaning makers. We're meaning connectors. We're, because we're made in God's image, we are those who are uh, just naturally trying to connect the dots to make sense of things. It's part of the task that God has actually given to us. It's the vocation that he's given to us as human beings to steward the world, to steward his creation for his glory. In order to do that well, we have to um, work on making more sense of it. But what happens in our fallen state 
So now moving past the creation episode of the biblical story into the fall, the reality that something has happened that has tragically changed everything, and that is human rebellion against God. Now we are still those who are meeting makers, but what often happens now is that our quest, our search to make meaning is corrupted. It's corrupted because what we're trying to do is to put ourselves in the place of God. You know, we're, we're trying to, to be those who um, can tell the difference between uh, evil and good more so and in a more wise way than God himself. We think, you know what, I know better. And so we try to put ourselves in that role, that place of God, to try to have control and mastery over life. And so it's like a lot of things in life. It, it was helpful for me um, years ago in a book called Creation Regained, where this writer talked about the distinction between structure and direction. And what he meant by that was that structure refers to the way, things, the way God designed things to be. Direction refers to how, particularly in our fallen state, how we can take those good things and corrupt them and misuse them. And that's what we do, even with the quest um, to make meaning, to make sense of life. We, it becomes an unhealthy thing where it becomes about control for us. So in verse 17, the preacher comes to a conclusion about wisdom. We're going to keep seeing this conclusion over and over again. Last week, it had to do with the pursuit of pleasure. Here, it has to do with the pursuit of wisdom. The preacher concludes in verse 17 that he hated life. And that wisdom, too, is also vapor and a striving after the wind. So he moves on in his quest. Now, beginning in verse 18, he's going to reflect on work. Now, when we talk about work, don't necessarily think of a nine-to-five job. Now, that is certainly included um, in our reflections on work. But when the preacher is speaking of work, or the word he uses is toil, it really is referring to all of our activities in life, all of our endeavors as human beings, our toil, our work in this world as a whole. So he makes the shift from wisdom to work, to focus in on, to, on work, to ask the question, well, maybe work holds the key to making sense of all of life. Now, unlike his reflections on wisdom, there's really no optimism at the beginning of these reflections. He starts at a pretty pessimistic place um, in the beginning. He starts off by saying, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Why? Why does he reach this conclusion so quickly? It's because he realizes that he can't take the fruits or the results of his toil with him. He's going to die, and he's going to have to leave it to someone else. And now it gets even more complicated, because there's no guarantee that the person to whom he leaves the fruits of his toil will actually use it well. He, he can't know for sure whether that person will be a wise person or a foolish person. He could leave, it, he could leave the, the fruits of his toil to someone, a, a child, whatever it might be, and that person could turn out to be foolish and misuse and um, corrupt 
um, all of the fruits of his toil. So, pretty pessimistic. He realizes, okay, well, toil can't hold the key to making sense of all of life. Really, what's going on here, because it comes back to the reality of death, doesn't it? He realizes, in the same way that he was reflecting on this with wisdom, he realizes that he is going to one day die. And he has no control over what will happen with his, the fruits of his toil when he's dead. So inevitably, it comes back to the issue of control. He's starting to feel trapped. Like he's trying to, to move himself into this place of control and it's moving him into despair because he's recognizing that there is nothing in this life that actually will give me that control, that place of security in life that I want. So he has no choice but to conclude that toil is also vapor. It's a striving after the wind when it comes to the possibility of it being the key that unlocks everything. It doesn't provide him with the gain, the leverage or advantage that he's searching for. Now, remember what we've said about this word vanity. There are some translations that translate this word vanity as meaningless. And I've made the case that uh, I don't think that that is a good translation at all. I think vanity, um, more specifically vapor, would be the better um, translation because the preacher is not, and this is so important for us to, to, to recognize in the overall logic and argument of the book, the preacher is not now saying that wisdom and toil or work are meaningless. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that to try to hold them up as the keys that make sense of it all, that is what is meaningless. It's vapor. It's a striving after the wind. So twice, you've probably picked up on it, once in talking about wisdom, once in talking about work, the preacher talks about hating something in life. In verse 17, it's life itself that he says he hates. In verse 18, it's his toil that he hates. And this leads him to talk about how he gave his heart to despair in verse 20. He says, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. This language where he's talking about giving his heart to despair, it's language that expresses the deepest of feelings. He's in a personal crisis here. Because this is not, as we've said, simply an intellectual pursuit. It's not just an exercise of the mind. He's not just doing this as a logic experiment. He's doing this from his heart. In the same way that we do this, go about this search from the core of who we are. Looking for what will make sense of it all. And he keeps striking out. And so it's leading him to despair. He, he's expressing his deepest feelings here. This hurts. This is a personal crisis. Do you know what he's talking about? I wonder if 
Some of you maybe are in that place even this morning. You find yourself in that personal crisis. You find yourself in that place where it hurts because there are hard things going on in your life. Some of those things are going on in your own heart. Other things going on around you. And it's causing you maybe to question the goodness of God, to wonder where he is. And it is frustrating. And you're, you're trying to figure it all out. And you can't. And you feel like maybe you're at a point of despair. This is where the preacher is. He's not despairing of life itself. He's despairing of his wisdom, of his work, because they can't bring him to that place of control and security. And what is in the background of all of this is what we've pointed out. It's the reality of death. Death makes us incredibly vulnerable. Now, catch the, the irony here. Part of the, the human search, especially in our fallen state, is to possess control and mastery. Well, death robs us of that. Death takes away whatever leverage we might think we have over the world. It, it takes away whatever gain we might think we have, whatever advantage we might have that would produce this control and security. Death simply robs us of it. And the preacher hates these kinds of things. He uses the language later that it was grievous to him. So two times he talks about hating something in life. Life and toil. Does that surprise you? Like, first of all, did you even know that that was in the Bible? That somebody who is um, introduced to us as a person of great wisdom has said to us, as a point of wisdom, that he hated life. Does that surprise you? It's a little surprising to me, if I'm honest, because doesn't it sound somewhat impious? Doesn't it seem to maybe indicate a lack of faith? That he's simply dwelling on the negative stuff of life, that he's forgetting the goodness of God. It kind of sounds like he's impious. But I suggest to you that these words are actually incredibly pious. They're incredibly wise. They're the words of a man who is wrestling with his faith at a, not at a super, superficial level, but at a very deep and personal level. Let's be honest. There are times in which you've basically said the same thing. You know, those times in life when you say something like, man, life sucks. This sucks. And if you, if you were to be pressed on it, you would find it to be a little obnoxious, right? Like, let's say you said that in my presence and I were to say, well, like, I mean, do you really mean that all of life sucks? Like, is it all really that bad? Like, aren't there good things in your life? You would rightfully probably roll your eyes at me and kind of think, you know what I mean. And I think that's some of the response that we're meant to have here. The preacher, as we're going to actually see, is not saying that life only sucks, that life is only tragic, 
that he hates life and that's the only emotion that he feels, that's not what he's saying. It's almost like we should come to him and say, we know what you mean. We've been there. We've felt it. We've said it. Sometimes the most pious thing that we can do is to hate life. Here's what I mean. Remember that the preacher is talking about life under the sun or life under heaven. He's specifically talking about life in a fallen world. In a world that now is all too full of tragedy, where there is injustice, where there is unfairness, where there is corruption, where our hearts don't work the way that we, in our best moments, desire them to. You know, those times when you do something and you, even immediately after doing it, you you think to yourself, oh my goodness, why did I do that? You know that it's not right. You know that it's not good. You know that it's not beautiful. And not to mention all of the things that are done to you or to us or that go on around the, um, in the world around us. And it's actually incredibly pious for at times to say, I hate this. I hate this. This is what the psalmists are getting at when they cry out and use language such as, how long, O Lord? How long will you allow this to go on? It could be that if you never feel what the preacher's talking about here, that you are actually too okay with the way things are. Whether it be the status quo of your own life and faith, whether it be accepting what is sin, uh, what, around you what is actually sin, but accepting it as good. Uh, it could be that you just, for a variety of reasons, are a person who just won't allow yourself to go there. You know what I mean? Like whether it's stuff inside of you or stuff outside of you, you tell yourself, I just can't deal with it. I can't cope with it. So I'm going to pretend that those things aren't real. I mean, you don't literally think that maybe, but the way you go about your life is reflecting that. And these could all be examples of us actually being too okay with the way things are. When we have this reaction... I hate this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It oftentimes is a reflection of the image of God in us. That we are revolting against sin. That we are revolting against evil. That we are revolting against corruption. And by learning to do this well, it can actually help us to cultivate shalom in our lives. Shalom being that word that refers to fullness of life, the flourishing that God intends for us. We we can't cultivate, we can't begin to cultivate shalom in our lives if we live foolishly. Remember, there is some advantage to being wise. That's part of the conclusion here that, you know, he he makes the whole argument about light and darkness. Um, There is an advantage to being wise over being a fool, It's just his ultimate conclusion is that that doesn't lead you to that place of mastery and control over life, but it's actually good. It's better than being a fool. 
But we can't cultivate shalom if we're not leaning into God's wisdom, if we're not embracing what is, what is true of his story, and we're not growing in our hatred of what is evil and in our love of what is good. The Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Romans, says it like this, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. There are times in which we say, I hate this or I hate life, when that is actually, in a sense, what we are articulating. We are hating what is evil and trying to cling to what is good. God wants our hearts to ache for Eden. He wants us to yearn for goodness. He wants us to yearn for redemption. He wants us to yearn for the way things are supposed to be. And in order to grow in that, it requires wrestling. Wrestling with hard stuff, wrestling with God. It requires that we do the very thing that the preacher is doing here in Ecclesiastes. Zach Eswine was one of my um, seminary professors, and he's written a book on Ecclesiastes, the gospel according to Ecclesiastes. And in the book, he says this, the preacher speaks like this, not just because God can handle it, but because a true relationship with God sometimes requires such language. Otherwise, we compartmentalize the ugly within us and act as if the world is not broken. We only tell God that we are blessed and full of pleasure to serve. We take our pains and frustrations and hide them away when all along we could have brought them to God and encouraged others to do the same. The preacher mentors us into a life that places God at the center of everything, even of our hatreds. A God-fearing preacher in his maturity can say, I hated life. Hatred for life does not necessarily... Now, you have context for, for this, right? We're not talking about hating life as a whole. Um, we're talking about specifically the way that things are not, um, the, way that they're, the way that things currently are. But hatred for life in this way does not necessarily signify an absence of faith. It actually often is an expression of faith. It's an invitation, an opportunity for you to take these emotions, to take this response to God and to ask him to sanctify it to make it holy, to ensure that it is directed toward righteousness and not your own selfish purposes, or especially cynicism. Because here's what can happen with this. We can be, on the one side, we can be people who hear this and it's almost like it gives you the freedom to just hate all of life. You know what I'm talking about? There's some of us, and sometimes this is true of me, you just tend to be somebody who is more bleak in your outlook. And um, maybe it's that this kind of language from scripture really resonates with you. And it's been even something that has helped sustain your faith over the years. But we have to realize that there could be this temptation that we only dwell on the fallenness of life. And that what we would like to say is actually faith, is actually cynicism. On the other hand, it could be that you take issue with the language of the preacher. 
Now you recognize, okay, okay, this is the Bible. This is the word of God. And so it's there and it must be right, but makes me really uncomfortable. It could be, I'm not saying it is, but it could be that you are a person who is regularly unwilling to look at what is hard and tragic about life. And there's an invitation maybe for you to bring those reflections into God's presence and to ask him to show you what is what. All right, what should we do when we hate life? Because there are all kinds of things that come into our lives that cause us to have this reaction, this response. What do we do when we're feeling this way? I mean, obviously, first we, we name it for what it is and bring it to God and talk to him about it and process it with him. But I want to now direct our attention to verses 22 through 25. In these verses, the preacher offers a remedy. And it's the first time he's talked like this in the book. Now, we're not far in, but still, it's the end of chapter 2. And this is the first time he, he talks like this. It's the first time he really explicitly talks about God in his presence. Now, he did it in chapter 1, in verse 13, but that was actually more of a complaint directed against God. And what he says here might, again, surprise you. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This is one of, I think, five places where we're going to see the preacher say this throughout the book. And these five instances are um, biblical scholars and commentators debate over what the meaning of these verses is. Um, some say that the preacher is basically saying that life apart from God is meaningless. Um, I don't think that that's his logic here. I don't think that what he's saying. And then the idea there is that, well, if you don't believe in God, if you're living apart from God, you might as well eat and drink and be merry because you have nothing to live for. I don't think that that's what the preacher is saying in Ecclesiastes necessarily. Remember, the core issue here is the quest for control, for mastery over life. And so we have to hear this remedy, these words, in that context. And the idea is this, that life is not to be controlled. It is to be received as gift. Life is not to be controlled. It is to be received as gift. You find yourself in countless situations that are frustrating. You find yourself rubbing up against countless things in your life that cause you to say, I hate life. Life under the sun is hard. It's complicated. It's confusing. And what awaits is the inevitability of death that robs us of leverage and gain and makes us feel vulnerable. So the question is kind of this, how do we maintain sanity? You know that, does that resonate? Like how do we maintain sanity amid such hard realities? The preacher says, there's nothing better for a person than that they should eat 
and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. This is from the hand of God. Paraphrase, sometimes you just need to chill out and enjoy life. Sometimes you just need to chill and receive God's good gifts. How do we maintain sanity in a world that is so insane? It's by not simply dwelling on the fact that we hate life, even those realities of life that are worth hating, but that we also have an enlarged perspective where we don't overlook the good gifts from God's hand. Because it's not just only true that we hate life, it's also true that God is good and that God gives us good gifts for our enjoyment. And our temptation sometimes can be to dwell, and it's understandable, but to dwell so much on the hard realities of life, the tragedies of life, our own sin, our own, our own corruption in our own hearts, to dwell on it to the point that we are almost making ourselves insane and we're forgetting that God is good. But brothers and sisters, God is good even amid the hard realities. And right before us are countless good gifts that he wants us to receive. And so it might be that the best thing you can do is to have a celebratory dinner with your family, with your friends. The best thing you could do maybe is to enjoy this Phillies playoff run because, as you know, might not come around again for many, many years. The best thing that you might do is enjoy the good things in your life, not to the point that you ignore the hard realities because that is idolatry. And that's, that's the whole tension, isn't it? Because the temptation is to take these good things and to try to leverage them. Try to get them to provide us with gain, with control over mastery of life. If only the Phillies could win the World Series, then that will take care of my problems for now. It sounds foolish, but I, I think this way. I'm just me. I think this way. If only the Eagles will go to 5-0. and oh. That'll help me deal with some of the hard things in my life over the next week. Or, you know, maybe it's you overindulge in drink or overindulge in food or so on and so forth. This is the tension. This is the tension of life in a fallen world. There are hard realities. There are good gifts. And we, instead of just simply receiving these good gifts and expressing our gratitude toward God, we can take them and try to manipulate them and misuse them and try to hold them up as the place of God to try to gain leverage and control and mastery over life. And it doesn't work. Phillies probably aren't going to win the World Series this year. But even if they do, my problems aren't going to go away. And, you know, you can fill in the blank and think about it in your own scenario. And so where does that leave us? Well, one commentator says this, wisdom, real biblical wisdom, is not the art of steering and programming the world according to our purposes. 
Wisdom does not advise humanity to search for order in order to attempt to master life. Under the sun, one cannot know, one cannot predict, one cannot trace casual connections. Who knows why things happen? Often trying to figure it out is simply chasing after the wind as if we can catch and contain it. One can only hope and believe. Rejoice in what God has given you to do and trust in him. This is the perspective of faith. In other words, let God be God. Let God be God. Life is not meant to be controlled. It is to be received as gift. This isn't to say that we shouldn't try to make sense of life, um, that we shouldn't try to figure out meaning. That's, like, I'm going to keep saying it throughout the series, that's not where the preacher goes wrong in his quest. It is to try to identify something in his quest as what provides control and mastery for him over life. And at the end of the day, we need to let God be God. And there's great freedom in that. Because we recognize that, yes, death awaits it, 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 it makes us vulnerable. It robs us of, of leverage and advantage. But through faith in Jesus and what he's done for us, we don't have to fear death. Even with death, the, the, the thing that causes the greatest vulnerability in our lives, we can trust God. We can trust that even when we don't understand it all, he actually is in a place of control and that our security is in him. We can let him be, be God. And when we do, there's greater opportunity for us to actually enjoy his good gifts in life. You know those moments when you're enjoying those good gifts and you're not using them as idols? And you have those moments. This connects back to pleasure last week. You have those moments where you sigh positively. This is a glimpse into the way things are meant to be. This is the world that I'm made for. And we can trust that God is in control and that one day he will make all things new. That the world to come will be that world that we are made for, where the hard realities, the tragedies of life will be no more. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we're not going directly into communion, um, just so the music team knows. But as we, we come to the Lord's table this morning, it's a gift. And I keep saying this, you know, these, the, the elements are so ordinary. They're lame wafers and lame grape juice. You know, they, they are what they are, but that's not the point. The point is that mysteriously, spiritually, Jesus takes these ordinary lame things and uses them for good. He uses them for redemptive purposes in our lives. And what this meal points us to is gift. God gives us all as gift. And it's one of the reasons that we partake of the Lord's Supper each and every week so that our minds and our hearts can be trained to approach life in this way. Gift, gift. God is the giver of good gifts. And may we have a posture of heart that would receive them. Let's pray. Jesus, what you ultimately offer us in the Lord's Supper is yourself. 
you are the greatest gift, the one who had all the control in the universe, and yet you relinquished it in a certain sense to make yourself vulnerable, to experience death, so that in the ultimate sense, we will never have to. I pray that you would take what we've heard from your word this morning, that you, that you would take what we will receive in the supper, and that you will train our minds and our hearts to hate what we should hate about life, but to desire what is good. Help us to cultivate shalom and to receive your good gifts. We pray in your name. Amen.